Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Zaire. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. (laughs) There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. This is the fifth episode in a 10-part series inspired by the people I taught memoir writing in a men's prison. The series will bring you stories written by my former memoir students, as well as formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people from around the United States. Their experiences and voices, like those of many incarcerated people, are often marginalized and unheard. To help us get this right, Zaire will be contributing his feedback and commentary throughout the series as co-host along with Andrea and me. Zaire is a poet, musician, and teaching artist who teaches writing and poetry in school and juvenile detention facilities. Thank you, Zaire. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I want to say before we continue that we want to be respectful of those who have been personally affected by violence. We don't mean to sensationalize crime or someone who breaks the law. Instead, we want to share stories because we believe that stories lead to understanding. I do want to say that we do think that the criminal, uh, is it called criminal justice system? If justice is the word you're looking for. Well, there is a lack of justice in the criminal justice system, and we believe that. And we also believe that it's racist. Can we just say it? And outdated, for fuck's sake. Let's get it right already. And outdated, for fuck's sake. Let's get it right already. Our main goal is to bring that to light and also to share stories, because stories lead to understanding. And if there's anything we need right now is understanding. On episode 115, the first episode in the series, we went into detail about our motivation and hope for airing these stories. I told my story of meeting Too Tall and some of the other men you will hear from in this series. So please listen to that first episode, episode 115, if you haven't already. Today, we have Rushmi Aaron on the show. Rushmi is an internationally recognized corporate and motivational speaker, leader, and entrepreneur. She energizes any audience to harness the power of vulnerability to create courage. As a leader in her community and beyond, Rushmi empowers others to be leaders and overcome adversity and challenges. And she is currently working on a memoir. We asked Rushmi to come on our show because she has a story to tell. I don't want to kill her thunder, so I'm going to let her just tell her story, and then you'll be able to understand why she's on this show. I was a wealthy suburban woman. Then I went to federal prison for bank fraud. The alarm buzzes and my eyes open. I peer into the sea of other bunk beds around me. 180 women also convicted of a crime. It's 5 a.m. and time for count. A guard walks past my cubicle, which is six feet by nine feet and surrounded by shoulder height walls. This is where I've been living for the past few months with my bunkie. I spend a few minutes writing down my thoughts. On this morning, I recognized my fear of the uncertainty that lies ahead and ask for spiritual protection and strength. By 5.30 a.m., I have changed from gray sweatpants and sweatshirt 
into oversized men's basketball shorts and a cotton t-shirt. Before heading out for my morning run, I take a few moments to send an email to Kyler and Maya, my children. I am 350 miles away from them where they live and have been for the past five months. I've been locked up in Coleman Correctional Complex in Central Florida. They are nine and 10 years old. It's been rough for my kids to be without their mom. My parents live across the street from them in their suburban South Florida neighborhood. So they have their father and their grandparents with them daily. And for that, I am grateful. At 545, I head toward the track. As I walk in the dark, the crater in my stomach feels heavy. My mind flashes to the childhood me, a little Indian girl who wore pigtails, strove for my parents' approval, and always focused on getting the best grades. How did that person wind up in a women's federal prison? I look up at the light poles that line the track and I check for bats. They circle one of the light poles, so I run extra fast around that curve. As I loop the track, it feels like thick cotton is draped over my lungs. My mind is always questioning, how will I get through the day? I am so scared. The fear began 15 months earlier. My parents, best friend, and I were at a Hindu temple for Tuesday night worship. When my phone lit up, I stepped outside to take the call from my attorney. I could hear the defeat in his voice. My lawyers had been in a meeting with the prosecutor, hoping to convince him to not file charges against me. It was not good news. I collapsed, shaking, and started to cry. Two months later, my parents, husband, kids, and I met with my friends and family to explain what happened. My father stood at the front of the room and told everyone I had just been charged with conspiracy and bank fraud in transactions that I executed for my client, a Miami developer. I had got cotton up in a shady real estate dealing during the housing boom of 2007 and 8. My dad and I were crying. The rest of the room was silent. One of my uncles turned to me and said, Betty, daughter in Hindi, you will one day understand that this is not happening to you. It's happening for you. In that moment, I didn't get it. I was mad and confused. As the days passed, I began to acknowledge that what I had done and what I had not done. I didn't ask questions of the developer, his team, or the realtors. I thought if I asked for help, I would be perceived as weak, imperfect. I didn't listen to my gut because I didn't want to know the answers. I didn't want to lose my biggest client. I had graduated from Columbia Law School with honors and opened my own law practice four years earlier. I wanted to continue providing for my children and sending them to the best schools, to live in a nice home in a fabulous Miami neighborhood, and I wanted to keep up appearances. My inner voice screamed, be careful. Ask for a second opinion. Are you sure this is okay? Instead, I felt flattered and like I belonged in the big leagues. I convinced myself I was smart enough to do the right thing, and I never considered I could be doing something wrong. Essentially, the developer was selling his condos with this scheme. He gave buyers the equivalent of two years of mortgage payments as incentive to buy his condos, which violated the terms of his own developer loan. As a lawyer in the transactions, I failed to disclose this information to the banks, providing loans to the buyers, thereby harming the banks and possibly encouraging buyers to take on more debt than they could afford, contributing to the Great Recession of the late 2000s. Six months after the call at Temple, and after hours spent poring over hundreds of thousands of documents, my attorney told me if I went to trial, I would lose. I could sit in prison for 20 years. He said, Rushmi, you will miss it all. Your kid's whole life. He said he knew I didn't go into this planning a crime, but that I should have asked more questions. I did something wrong because I didn't act. 
I was selfish. It was at that moment I decided to own my mistake, my crime. It was also in that moment I realized I was going to be a felon for the rest of my life. I pleaded guilty in 2014, and I made a very conscious decision to be transparent. I had disgraced my family, my community, my friends, and others. I had let everybody down. Every teacher who believed in me, every boss who'd taught me, every group I'd given my time to in the community. One by one, I picked up the phone and began to call the people in my life I cared about. Friends I'd known since elementary school, through college, law school, professional jobs, and even community friends. I called my kids' teachers and their friends' parents. In each call, I told the whole story. Each person said they would support me unconditionally. During my six months in prison, I did several jobs. Early on, I was the trash girl. Every day, just before evening recall, when all inmates are required to be back in their housing unit, I pushed the two giant trash bins from the side of each housing building to the back of the complex. One by one, I removed the trash bags, threw them into the compactor, dug to the bottom for any garbage that fell out of the bags, and finally pushed the compactor button. My other job was teaching my fellow inmates math in English and Spanish. I saw the eyes of one abuelita light up when she learned how to add fractions. Another friend passed the GRE. She claimed it was because I helped her with the math section. In prison, I learned this very basic fact. I am human. Humans make mistakes. It's through my mistakes and losing my freedom, I found the courage to be vulnerable and real. I shifted my definition of success from accolades, grades, and status to creating authentic relationships and helping others. I'm no longer scared to show my true self. I'm raw all the time. It's been three and a half years since I left prison. Things are just getting back to normal. I drive carpool, work, and watch my daughter's volleyball and son's basketball games. My children were sad and scared for me, but they were always supportive. My husband was angry for a long time, and we divorced when I came home, but we have settled into a positive and healthy friendship. I have been open with my story and the lessons I have learned in the work I've chosen as a motivational speaker and consultant, working with corporations, universities, and law firms. It took a while for people to listen to me. My TEDx talk helped with the legitimacy, but there will always be naysayers. I am an ex-con. Financially, I am also struggling. My parents helped me, and that is okay for now. Along with my children, they are at the top of my gratitude journal. I want others to hear my cautionary tale so they won't make the same mistakes I made. I am working hard to be forgiven, and I'm working even harder to forgive myself. I, I, I just a beautiful, beautiful read. And it's a beautiful story and it's heartfelt. And I get from this story, Rashmi's whole new mission. The, the line that gave me chills was when um, her uncle said, you'll, you'll understand one day that this isn't happening to you, but this is happening for you. I, I really got chills. I wrote down chills. You know, I had this really weird, I hate to bring up myself, but of course I always do. But like um, when he said that and she said, I'm just going to take responsibility for myself and my mistake and I'm going to go do the time. That is how I felt when I got cancer. And they're like, you have to do chemo. And everyone's like, oh, you can get your hair this and you can save your hair and caps. I'm like, no, I'm going to just do it. I'm going to get it over with. I'm going to absorb it. 
I'm going to become that person. I'm going to live it. And then I'm going to move on with my life. And I did go into it thinking it would be over one day and I could be done with cancer and be on with it. But that's really not how it works, right? So I'm wondering if you feel the same way. Well, it works for people who have a six-month sentence. So Rushmi knew that she was in for six months. She's in for a year. A year? I think six months in, that's what was going on. She got out after a year. But there's a deadline to chemo. Afterwards, you think you're going to be done with it, but she's li- she's an ex-con. She's to live with the consequences. And that's what I love so much about the story. She gets to that part. Like, okay, I'm going to do my time. And I'm like, yeah, good for her. She Martha Stewarted it. Mm-hmm. But fucking that bitch, Martha Stewart is doing fine. We don't know that. Martha Stewart's also an ex-con. But the difference is these, the guys that we usually have on in, in, during this year is they don't have a year long sentence. Their sentences are way the fuck too long and are indefinite. And sometimes they can never get out. But okay, we're not talking about those guys, but I do see the difference. And I do, I actually think that's a really interesting um, chemo, what's it called? Like analogy. Yeah. So um, thank you for stepping in and talking about yourself, Allison. Anyway, so let's talk about the stories. I hear, I'm dying to know, like, how did this hit you? Um, I thought it was uh, like, I'm going to echo your, you guys' sentiments very beautifully told. Um, one thing I, I, that sort of stuck out to me is a little bit of, we've, we've sort of danced around this conversation uh, week by week, but just how in every, in every story that we hear in every case, uh, that is in front of us. It's always, um, it's always okay. Somebody made a mistake, right? And that—that's—I feel like that boils down just the human experience as a whole. It's just a bunch of people making a bunch of mistakes. It's just some people uh, get pretty much just strung out for the mistakes that they make, and um, it's. It's very telling of who we are as a, as a society. We're like certain certain mistakes we're okay with, and certain mistakes we're okay with certain people making. But when you boil it down to it, if, this, if the wrong person makes the wrong mistake, that could be the end of their life. We're all just nodding. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that if you had known Rushmi, wait, that, we're not talking about. Um, Rush- I know we're not supposed to be. I know, I know, we're not supposed to be talking about her. Okay, I have questions. For fuck's sake, write them down. Write them down. Yeah, she is in the dome of silence. We are not treating Rushmi any differently than we treat any other student in writing class radio. But she's here. We can ask her questions. She has to wait. Uh. I have a few more note. I mean, a few more things that I noticed about the writing of the story that I, th- I think are kind of interesting to, to mention. She um, did a really good job of setting up this little Indian girl who is like a shining star little girl. I mean, I'd love to talk to Rushmi later about like, what is, how does the Indian part of that play? Culturally, she had to be a certain kid and then she had to be, or grew into a certain adult. And then she was not that for herself and for her community. And she really did set it up. I I just thought that was really well done. So she brought in the cultural element and she brought in who she was as a little girl and who she became. The other thing that she did really well, but I wanted a little more, is how she felt flattered in the world of business. 
So, and maybe it's just me, but I was like, okay, so here is this overachiever, Columbia Law School graduate. She's in the room with the big guys and I'm guessing they're guys. What, I don't know. I, I wanted, I wanted, maybe that's something we could just talk about later. Like how did that feel? And why didn't she ask more questions? Did she know? So I worked on this story with her. So I sort of thought about these kind of things when, when we were editing and creating it. First of all, because you're stuck with a word limit to get into some of these places, 1,200, maybe 1,500 words. To elaborate sometimes mm-hmm. takes away from the point. So we really had to focus on, well, what is she trying to say in this essay? And what do you think she was trying to say? That's the thing, right? There's probably like two things. She's showing the journey of like overachieving kid makes bad and then comes through. Like, I don't want to use that image of the butterfly because it's like so overused, but she does come out again in a way where she's all about, now she's all about transparency. And she says that at the end of the story. So there was something about not being, maybe that's the what I wanted in the middle. So if we're following this through line of, I don't know, of, of transparency, then I wanted to see where she wasn't transparent because now she is. I mean, I don't think that's what this story is about necessarily. I mean, I don't want to knock the story. I think it's excellent. And there are a bunch of issues that come through. Well, it's interesting when somebody tells a story, you may be attracted to one certain point that may be something you deal with. You know, like we as as writers, like sometimes you'll send me an essay and I'm like, I I don't find that interesting at all. And you're like, but it's so good. And I'm like, really? Yeah, I mean, it's well-written, but I don't care. I would never pick this up to read. Or I think it's about transparency and you think it's about things that happen to you versus things that happen for you. What was I here? What do you think it's about? Which is, this is always the question we ask every student on every essay. For me, the I, I guess whenever I'm deciding what something is about for me, um, I guess that's more tone than mood. But um, I always look at it as what my takeaway was. And the takeaway for me was the um, redirection of, of value. So she begins by talking about her early life, you know, how she viewed success being amongst, you know, these people in these in these areas. And then once incarcerated, uh, viewing success in a different light. So viewing it in teaching other inmates math, viewing it in, you know, being a, a functioning member of this new society she found herself a part of. That was my takeaway, the, the reinvention of, of one's value. I mean, that's what I think is about, too. And then telling this story, not because she's bragging, because who brags about this? She's saying that this happened to me and I don't want this to happen to anybody else. Why do we tell our story ever? Because we're looking for a connection. We're looking to you know, Andrea always throws a face up if you say you're trying to help somebody with your story. But we tell our stories to connect, but also to to prevent because it, you don't want what you did to just be something you did. You want it to go bigger. I know you're going to disagree, but that's OK. No, I think that that is true. Like we do tell our stories and hopefully they help other people. But I think that, and we can ask Rashmi in a minute that she was telling the story to figure out what the fuck happened. How did this happen? How did this little Indian girl go from being super achiever to ex-con? And now what? And I do. And so in the figuring out herself, she's come 
out with this beautiful piece of art that other people will read and hear and be moved by and hopefully changed by. But I, in my mind, that is always the secondary, you know, like that's the unintended, very good consequence of a story well told. Yeah, yeah. I do know that Rushmi also now like goes up on stage and she tells her story deliberately to help other people. But in the original writing of the story, I don't think that she sat down and we can ask her to like, hey, I'm going to help people now. I don't know. I don't think that that motivation is enough. I think it always has to come from some tiny, like figuring out need. I think I think every personal story is originally written from a from a place of, okay, I need to get this out, not necessarily for other people, but just get this out of me because it's something that I'm holding on to. So I think that every story has that. But I think both can be true. You know, it can be for for, you know, release while also being for the purposes of of helping other people in that moment as well. So, I mean, sometimes just writing helps you figure out, like, why the fuck did this happen to me? I think it always does. So I think that what Zaire is saying and what I'm saying is that uh, a story starts with someone trying to understand the self. And then they can then share that and other people will understand themselves through. That's literature. That's what literature is. I don't know why, but it really does bug me when people are trying to help the world, setting out to help other people. If you're going to set out to help other people, be a doctor. If that's your motivation. I mean, it's a beautiful motivation. I don't mean to knock it. I want to help other people too. Okay. Can we ask questions now? Yes. Bring her in. Yeah. After the break, we'll let Rushmi come out of the dome of silence. Allison Langer, and every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, I host First Draft. It's a class, kinda, because you'll get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a group where you come together with other writers online, write to a prompt and share what you wrote. It's the only way to get better. Come join me. Check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com or go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio to learn more. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. So my my main question, would you have been deterred by a longer sentence? Like, would this have made you not do what you did? So I've never thought about this question. I don't know if we're saying if while I was doing these transactions, had I known that it could result in 20 years, would it have prevented me? I don't even think I was in that mindset. I had no moral humility at that point. Like I was... I lacked such moral awareness and judgment about what I was doing that it it was not, I was not, that was like 10 steps ahead of where I was even, I wasn't even thinking think about the first step, which is, hey, this could be wrong. I should probably stop doing this. Um, because like I, 
you know, I've tried to understand and really do research and like, what the hell went wrong? And, you know, to your point, why did I even start doing this research and thinking that and talking about it is really because I had to understand myself, like, how the hell did I get to this place? And what went wrong? And why did I go so off path? And so as I began to understand behavioral psychology um, and ethics, I, I learned all these concepts. So one of them is moral humility. And so, you know, we all talk about humility. And as a kid, I was always taught humility. I've always watched it with my parents. But moral humility is taking it further and recognizing that on any given day, in any given moment, I can make a bad moral decision given the stressors, influences, pressures, ha- whatever happening in my life. And when we go through life not aware of what that is, moral humility, you you have what's called overconfidence bias, right? So you end up believing, you're the, like I believed I was such a good person that I would never do anything wrong. So I'd never even questioned the decisions I was making. And so that you basically lack any capacity of decision-making. Like there's no process you're going through in mentally. So all of this I've come to understand as I've done more and more research. And I now recognize that that's what how I went so off path is just, it, you know, no decision-making process, just doing and doing and doing and trying to, you know, get around that rat race of life and fast track of getting to my goals versus thinking through everything. So I don't know, like if I actually was in the mindset, I think for, for other people, I think there is maybe some prohibitive factor, but um, for me, I don't think that that was necessarily an issue for me. Because I'm thinking now, does an 18-year-old kid who wants to score $1,000 and goes into 7-Eleven with a, you know, not even loaded gun, have any moral humility? No. And does that 18-year-old kid think, ooh, if I get caught, I'm, I'm going to jail for 40 years. I'm not going to do this because 40 years is a long time. No. There's no thinking like that. Like the whole deterrent thing is just bogus. And they don't think they're going to get caught. I remember asking these guys, what were you guys thinking? What are, look, we weren't going to get caught. Yeah. Because so many people do get away with that, with it, without being yes. caught. That's, yes. That's the point. And that's what I was thinking when you were talking about moral humidity and overconfidence bias. I'm like, I have that. I do so many good things that I'm thinking, well, 90% of my life is really good. So I can do this other 10 bad shit because, and then, but if, if you're white and you live in a nice neighborhood, you might be able to get away with 90% good. But if you're not, you probably can't. It's the reverse. I mean, white people have such overconfidence bias that like, I even think that if I'm thinking it, it's probably okay, no matter what it is. Yeah, I mean, but going going along with um, what you were saying, Andrea, a minute ago, the the whole thing of um, with these these kids, there's like I'm I'm feel like I'm not I'm not gonna get caught. A lot of that is to do with the fact that, like you said, there's there's a chance that some people don't get away, some people do get away with it, and the people that they get away with it are people that they know. So they have examples of other people their age doing this and being fine. So they're like, okay, so it's fine then. It's not going to be a problem. Have you guys watched Cocaine Cowboys? Yes. Oh my God. Very well done. So, you know, do you know, Allison, that Billy Corbin who did Cocaine Cowboys, you know, Raconteur, Billy and Raconteur did my sentencing video. Did you know that? No. So I'll I'll do a little segue. I'll just let you guys know that um, when I was, once I decided to plead guilty, you know, David Marcus, who's my attorney, who's, by the way, the best if anyone ever needs anybody, he's definitely the best. But anyway, so David says to me, look, you've got this incredible list of people that we want to call as character witnesses, you know, obviously family, but 
I happen to know and be connected to a lot of important people in Miami. And as we all know, sentencing is a lot about just like anything else, relationships and, you know, who can put pressure on or, or create influence in terms of what they say. So I, um, and I was fortunate enough to have those relationships. So David said, well, but if you, if we try to bring them all to, up in a sentencing hearing, the judge is only going to allow like three, max four. And you've got 14 on your list that we want to call. So we're not going to be able to get them all at a hearing. Let me call around. I have an idea of what I want to do. So the next thing I know, he calls me into his office and he says, have you ever heard of Billy Corbin? I'm like, didn't he do the you 30 on 30? And he did cocaine cowboys like years ago. And he goes, yeah. He goes, well, I called in a favor because I kind of know him, which I didn't ask why. Billy basically had said, because David called him and said, I have a friend, because David and I have known each other for 20 years. Like he's a friend, right? Like from down the street. David said, I have a friend of mine who's going through this situation. Can you recommend somebody to do it who could do this? And he gave this idea, a sentencing video, which really had not been done yet. And um, David's, uh, Billy basically says, if she's a friend of yours, I'll do it for her. And he did it for me at cost. And he literally came and he did four full, three full days of taping, of videotaping. And, you know, he had hours and hours worth of video that they then cut and compiled and, you know, moved stuff around. And then they did by topic area. And it was, it ended up being a 12 minute video played in court um, as part of my sentencing hearing. And it, it was a hugely impactful thing for me. And it definitely helped me because he's so amazing. But one of the things I've recognized, no, you know, other people don't have this type of opportunity to have sentences reduced or, you know, this type of perspective shown to the judge about them and who they are. I happen to be in a situation that obviously gave me the best of the best in every, in every possible way. Um, and I, you know, a lot of it was because of people that I knew and I'm very fortunate in that, you know, I recognize that. And that's part of a privilege bias, you know, like that's, that's privilege. And our system is biased towards privilege. I mean, I'm glad for you. For sure. There's a million people out there that don't get that. And it should be a fair system where everybody, and I do think people are allowed to bring people into the courtroom and do a video, but these people work and they cannot afford that. Yeah, their character witnesses can't afford it even to take off work. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask um, two questions. Um, One about the writing. Um, There was a moment where she said, I was selfish. Right after her attorney said she would get 20 years and then she, so what would, what was that? What did that mean? Because I wanted the client and then I wanted to keep the client so badly. Why? Because it meant I could continue to have financial stability, which why? Because then I could have, a you know, keep my kids in private school and pay for, you know, a, a nice car. And so to me, that was all selfish because I wasn't thinking through the consequences of what could happen and ultimately what that meant for my children and my family. So to me, that's the selfishness. And then the other part of it is, and I get asked all the time, how is it fair that you went to prison when the 2008 Great Depression was really not your fault? It was, you know, all the big banks and all the Wall Street guys and none of them went to prison. How is it fair that you went to prison? And so one of the, you know, I, my response always is, yeah, but I have to own up to and hold myself accountable for the tiny little part that I played in that, in that Great Recession. And that's why I pled guilty. And that is my part of taking ownership. Did it mean that without me, the crisis would have still happened? Yes, of course would have still happened without me, but it doesn't matter. You know, like that's, that's part of what I believe is my karma and my mission now is to get over that and just keep now pressing forward and understanding myself better and better every time 
um, I guess I go through life. Well, I admire that. I admire that selfish line. I admire the way you take responsibility so much. So thank you for doing that. I had another question. Why were you the trash girl? How did that serve you in prison? It, <laughs> okay, so I was at a camp. So I spent my, actually, I was in three different facilities during my six months. Um, but the facility that I was at the longest was um, the Coleman Correctional Complex, which is a minimum security camp for women. It's the only one in Florida for women. So every single one of us had a job. It's part of our requirement to be there. It's a working camp. Uh, there were four other men's prisons in the same complex compound, but the women were the only one that had the job. So, you know, a lot of the jobs meant you were servicing and, you know, bringing stuff to each of those facilities. So when you get there after the first week or so, you have to choose what job you want. So the first job I chose was actually to work in the commissary warehouse, which meant everything that was being delivered for the commissary, everything from, you know, huge pellets of Pepsi cans, soda cans to, you know, pellets of Russell athletic clothing, right? All of that, every single thing, food, everything um, had to be separated by compact by prison, right? So which, which men's prison, which, and then delivered. So that was my first job. And that was from seven thirty to three, four, basically every day. But except for lunch. And I realized, well, wait a second. I have, you know, I, again, I recognize my privilege here, right? I have the good fortune that I'm only here. Tech, you know, only is a relative term, but I was only here for max a year. At that time, I didn't know. I, so to answer your question, before I was saying no to some of the stuff you were saying, I was sentenced to a year and a day. I ended up only serving six months because while I was incarcerated, I was transferred to a county jail, which was the third facility I was at. Um, near St. Petersburg and asked to testify in a totally different case that on behalf of the government. So because I did that extra action and extra help, I then got a rule 35 uh, two weeks later. And that meant that I was sent home on early release and I didn't have to go to home confinement or a halfway house. Again, another huge blessing. So that's why I ended up only serving six months of the one year sentence. Anyway, backtrack. So I, because I knew I had a light at the end of the tunnel, I also had already spiritually come to a place where I was treating this entire experience of being incarcerated as like forced and blessed ashram time to really go within and to learn and to read and to do some spiritual healing. And I did all, you know, I really wanted time for myself not to be, and I realized, oh, I don't want to be sitting in a seven to four job every day because uh, I'm not going to get the time to do that. And I want to make something of this time. So I ended up asking for a transfer. And the job that took the least amount of time was being the trash girl. So that's how I, and then, and then there happened to be an opening that opened up. So there, the trash girl, there were, there were two shifts. One shift was during the day. The shift that I got was at night, which, which definitely was the worst of it, right? Because I was alone at pitch dark night, taking these trash bins to the back of the compound, literally where there's nobody. And, you know, I had gloves, thank God. Uh, but but the amount of times that the trash would like bust, the bags would bust and I'd be fishing trash out of the bottom, you know, it was very humbling. And then I was, I did that for about two months and then somebody left in the education department and I had applied at the very beginning with like a resume that I made up to be a teacher. So when somebody left and the opening, opening happened, came up, then I became a teacher. Was there also a sort of a social um, status like if you take the worst job, you're like the coolest. Was there any of that? No, no, no. They were definitely the cool girls. Okay. So there were like pockets of the cool girls, which 
I kind of was trying to be trying to be part of, which is kind of funny. Really, it was just because they worked out a lot because I worked out a lot and I was always on the track and working out. I wanted to get in to their boot camp every evening. So I ended up making friends with one of them and then, you know, whatever. But they were definitely like the cool girls. Like one of the girls I remember was super young and I don't know, she just didn't like me for whatever reason. (laughs) So out of the group, there was like this one young girl who just for whatever reason chose not to like me, probably because my sentence was so low. And, you know, they, they were like, they all were there for three, five, seven, 11 years. Um, uh, then there was like a whole group of girls that I just made sure to stay away from because they were definitely known to be like troublemakers, violent, into fights. And, you know, so I just was like always really kind to them and nice to them. And I made sure that I didn't cross them. Um, and then there were like, um, anyway, there were definitely different pockets of people. And I have all these stories Damn. that I could share that I'm sure you know some of from from working in the in the prisons. Well, were you scared when you were there taking out the trash at night? Like, was it a scary place? Like, have you seen Wentworth? Like, was it like that? You were scared to like get beat up or stabbed or killed or anything? Okay, so I haven't seen Wentworth. I don't know what that is, but um, I was never scared of the other girls, let's say. I was told kind of very early on who to stay away from. And fortunately, they were not in my housing unit. So it wasn't hard to stay away from them. So I was never really scared. I was scared, though, when I was taking the trash out at night because I'm on a freaking prison compound and uh, I'm alone and at the back of the compound and forget the inmates. There could be a a, a guard that's bad. There could be any number of people that I have no idea. So those I was always pretty scared. And sometimes I would try to get my bunkie to go out there with me just so I wasn't alone just to follow me, you know. Um, other times I would try, I would look to see, and sometimes there were, so in, to get to the compound, you had to pass like this other room and like there was this hallway. And in that hall, one of the rooms was the hairdressing, like where you would learn to be a hairdresser room. Sometimes there were girls in there doing hair, you know. So sometimes I would like go by and be like, hey, does one of you want to walk with me? You know, so just like anything else, it's all about relationships. It's trying to create friendships so that people can help you, you know. Uh, I was just curious to know how um, how this entire experience with you being back has affected your relationship with your kids and um, how uh, what lesson or moral you took from from going through that that you impart with them. I love this question. So uh, so I'll start by saying that when we were when I was going through this um, at the when the day I got sentenced, I told my son who was nine at the time. And I wanted him to be aware because he's the kid that like would Google my name randomly just because he felt like it. And then I didn't want it to just come up and him be in shock. So I told him and I was very honest with him and told him the truth. And later on, when I got sentenced in June and we knew for sure I was going away, their dad and I, um, who we were already separated, but, um, you know, we wanted to have a unified front. We sat both kids down and told them the truth. And um, both of my kids are athletes. So I I kind of use sports analogies to explain to them that when you make mistakes and you make or you make bad decisions, then there are consequences in life, just like there are in sports. And that's how I let them know that I was going to be gone. So I'll, so the reason I start with that is I think it's really important for us to parent with honesty and with integrity because there were a lot of moms in prison that had lied to their kids. And I can't imagine having a relationship with your children based on that. And how do you, how do you move forward from that, right? In terms of creating established adults with 
who themselves are living with integrity. So I think there's a larger conversation in there, by the way, Allison and, and Andrea and Zaire on how that contributes to recidivism, right? I mean, like, I think that, you know, when you're coming from a place of embarrassment and lack of ownership, and it could, I think, contribute to recidivism. The kids, I, I, every single day, I, I emailed them every single day. I had a phone conversation with them or a video call with them every single day, every week I wrote to them. And then they visited me regularly as often as they could. How often? So I spent 10 days in the Miami facility here. So they, they visited me twice there, which was awful, like awful. First of all, it was the, my first week. I was scared. I was still crying. Um, I didn't want to be in that Miami facility because it was awful. So, and then, you know, the chairs were stuck to the ground, like all of it, it was horrible for visitation. So that was two days. And then when I got to Coleman, which is an hour North of Orlando, they came every two to three weeks and my parents brought them up and, you know, we would sit and play board games and eat stuff out of the vending machines. (laughs) And which was like, it was like such a thing for me to be able to go into visitation. And I knew I'd get a Diet Coke. I knew I'd get a Chobani flip yogurt. And I knew I might get like an ice cream cone or, you know, like the stuff that I was great. Not that I really craved Diet Coke inside. You could get Diet Pepsi inside, but I never bought it from commissary, but I would get it in, in visitation. And I craved the Chobani flip yogurts, which just sounds completely insane. Oh, and like a granola bar or something crazy. No, that makes sense. So then when I came out, you know, as I began to deconstruct what happened to me and try to understand, I, and I began to start sharing it on, you know, around the world. I, I honestly, my kids could probably give my speech at this point. They know my story so well. And so the whole lesson of accountability and ownership and integrity and all of that, they live with it every day. Cause I, I talk about it with them. And, and sometimes they feed it back to me. Like, you know, if I say, uh, I don't know, the other day I did something and my, my mom was like, I mean, my, my son was like, mom, you're the one that talks about ethics. You can't say you're going to come home at five, five and you get home at five 30. Like, where's the integrity in that? I'm like, okay, well, this is a little different. Like I can't account for traffic or a client running me late, but they, they definitely hold me to it. And, you know, there are times when I've had to call them out and say, uh, you know, that this is what I stand for and I have taken full ownership. So you better come forward and tell me exactly what happened and take full ownership because I promise you there will be consequences, but that's how life works. And I need to know now it'll be much worse if I find out from your friend or from another mom or, you know, and my kids are, you know, they're a sophomore and junior in high school and they're faced with all the challenges that teenagers face right now and drugs, alcohol, sex, all of it. And I have to have these conversations with them. And to me, I want them to come forward and feel that they can be honest and trustworthy and trusting with me versus hiding from me. I have a question. Did you have any problems with re-entry? And I don't know if Zaire was referring to that in his question, like getting a job, getting back into the world, how people viewed you. So I really want to know what it felt like to walk out of prison and back into your life as it now was. Okay. I'm going to preface this by saying I 100% recognize I come from a place of privilege and my experience is unlike other people. So I want to say that first, because I know that that is true. And I know that every other person that I was in prison with had a much harder time for the most part you know, let's say 98%, 99% of the people. So, you know, I came home, I have an amazing family and support system. Again, I think that that's, I'm very blessed in that. And so I honestly never had to try to apply for a job. I, my uncle had a job that I was able to ask him for, and I ended up helping him with some things. I asked a friend who runs a tutoring company, if I could be a tutor 
and I started to tutor, like she interviewed me, and then I started to tutor um, kids for SAT and ACT and SSAT, and so I was able to apply my educational background to that. Are you a lawyer anymore? No, I'm not allowed to practice law anymore. I had to do a voluntary revocation of my license in 2014 when I pled guilty, technically in December 2019. So I was on probation for three years, but when I came off probation and then in December 2019, I would be allowed to reapply to the bar, except that Florida is a very backward state, as you might be shocked to know. I owe, as part of my judgment, the only remaining part of my judgment is a $19 million restitution judgment that is for the benefit of who they deem to be the victims in my case. The victims in my case are Bank of America, Chase, and Wells Fargo. Oh, geez. And you owe them $19 million? Yes. So until that $19 million is paid off, I cannot restore my civil rights because of Governor DeSantis's um, uh, new amendment that he passed that basically inter- intervenes with Amendment 4. I still can't vote because I owe that amount of money. Because I can't restore my civil rights or vote, I can't apply to the bar because the Florida bar requires you to have your civil rights restored in order to even apply to the bar. I actually tried to apply to the North Carolina bar uh, last year, and they denied me because I can't get a certificate of good standing from Florida, obviously. <laughs> so no, I can't practice law. So it, after I got home, I began to start to think about sharing my story. And it's kind of a process, but I ended up getting invited to do some speeches and then people started to want to pay me. And then the judge, it's complicated, but basically there was a, a, a hearing in front of the judge and the judge basically said, I appreciate that what you're doing is sharing and helping people through your story. And I'm sure it must be very hard for you and I commend you for it, but I'm not gonna let you get paid for it. <laughs> so I internally felt like this was my, this is my pay it forward. Every speech and opportunity that came my way, I took it and I waived my speaker fee and uh, I kept doing these speeches. So from that, of course, once I was able to, you know, once I was off probation, I was able to earn money doing it. So now I do um, get to charge a fee for my speaking. But I've also grown into a lot of speak, uh, workshops and retreats, and I do a lot of like tangible hands-on work with people in various ways. I'm also doing some real estate stuff with my, my, with my parents who are developers. So um, I, I would say I'm very fortunate that I've never had to apply for a job, but I do know from my friends how hard it is. Now, having said that, there's parts of this, right? Like I've never had to apply for a job, but I have definitely had people that have passed judgment on me without even um, asking me questions. And people, these are people that I know in my life that, you know, most, for the most part, everyone was very supportive, but there are some people that I know like acquaintances. Um, There's one gentleman in particular who is a leader of a very large publicly traded company and located here in Miami. And I knew him before, and he actually had tried to offer me a job many, many years ago in a different way. And then I ran into him at at a party at a breakthrough party (laughs) and had a very brief conversation. And he literally within a minute cut me down to my knees. And my best friend who was there with me, Shanti, like I didn't even have to say it. She immediately could see that something was wrong because I had been talking to him alone. And then she was standing off to the side and I went off and I was like, we're leaving right now. And she was like, what happened? I said, we're leaving. I can't be here anymore. It affected me so much. And I, this was like, this was in 2018. So, or maybe it was 2019 even. It was 2019. And I, I, was, I was surprised at how much it hurt me. 
so instantly when I live with it every day, I talk about it every day, but to have somebody so blatantly like with arrogance, call me out in a way with, with like completely no, with lack of information and facts, like really just misinterpret and assume so much so bad about me was really hurtful. I'm sorry. So basically some guy was basically like, oh, you're guilty and you're like, you should have known better. You walked, you, you walked into that. Don't try to claim that you didn't know what you were doing and you, you know, you must've planned it whatever. And so I, you know, it hurt and I had to recognize that I'm still a human being and there's so, you know, there are emotions that are as much as I feel resilient and how I've come back out of this and, People want to know, how do you get up on stage without crying and talking about it? Like all of that, I get I'm a really strong woman, but sometimes I'm not. And, you know, thank God I have my friends and family to lift me up in those moments when I need to be lifted up. That's a beautiful place to stop. That that was so, thank you, God. That's so, I get it. Well, we wish you the very best. We appreciate you sharing your story with us and our listeners It's very, very important for all of us to be able to admit to our real selves, to not judge other people based on the things we don't really want to know about ourselves (laughs) or admit about ourselves, that we all have to admit that we're all humans trying to move forward in the world the best that we can. Yeah! Thanks for that. Thank you for being willing and open to share that with with us and everyone who you share it with. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Rashmi Aaron, for coming on the show and sharing your story. And thank you for listening. In the next episode in this series, we'll bring you a story written by Corey Arthur, who has been incarcerated in New York since 1997. Writing Class Radio is produced by Allison Langer, Zaire, me, Andrea Askowitz, and by Matt Kundal, Evan Serminski, and Courtney Fox at Sound Off Media Company. Additional music by Marnino Toussaint. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, essays to study, and editing resources. If you love the lessons you get on each episode, you can get them all in one place on our three-part video series for just $50. Click video classes on our website. If you want to be a part of the movement that helps people better understand each other through storytelling, follow us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash writingclassradio. For $10 a month, I, Andrea Askowitz, will answer all your publishing questions. Really, you can email me. We can think about where to get your stories published, how to write a pitch letter, all of that. For $25 a month, you can join Allison's first draft weekly writers group where you write to a prompt and share your work. That meets every Tuesday from noon to one Eastern. There is no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. 
Let's Take This Outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.